Hello, I'm Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, a veterinary surgeon from the UK, and this is the Underdog Vet Podcast. In each series, I'll bring you the Animal Advocate interviews, where you can join me as I chat to some truly inspiring people who have dedicated their lives to improving the health and welfare of animals around the world. Guests include a variety of people, including vets, campaigners, and those who have founded or work for animal charities. But one thing they all have in common with you and I is that they're passionate animal advocates. Feel free to hit the subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Details on how you can get in touch are at the end of this episode. And I hope you enjoy this latest instalment. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this episode of the Underdog Vet Podcast. In this episode's Animal Advocate interview, I chatted with my friend, fellow veterinary surgeon, passionate animal welfare campaigner and author, Emma Milne. Emma has been a familiar face in UK homes since the late 1990s, when she appeared in the hugely popular BBC One programme, Vets in Practice. Since then, Emma has used the platform her fame has provided to advocate, educate and campaign to improve the welfare of animals. She's campaigned on many topics, from hunting with dogs and tail docking to horse welfare, but her main driving force is pedigree animal health. Emma and I discussed why it's so important that pet owners know the fundamental welfare needs of their pets, how breeding pedigree dogs can sometimes have disastrous adverse effects on their welfare, and why it's so important for those of us within the veterinary profession to continue to raise our voices on sometimes inflammatory animal welfare issues, despite the backlash we may get for doing so. So, Emma, thank you so much for coming on to talk with me about animals' welfare needs. Uh, many people listening, I would imagine, already know who you are and what you do. But for those people listening who aren't sure, just give us a little bit of a potted history about who you are and, and, and what you're doing. I think it will only be the older members of your audience that have any idea who I am, because it was a long time ago now. But um, So I qualified from Bristol Vet School in 1996, and we were, well, some of us, not me, were filmed in our final year for a programme for the BBC called Vet School, which was very popular. And then they went on to make a programme called Vets in Practice, and they asked me if I would like to be in it. We thought it would be a bit of fun. One, one series, a little five minutes of fame. And that turned into seven years and 11 series. And at the time, it was before all the digital channels. So we had massive viewership numbers and people, I think because it followed our personal lives, people felt like they really got to know us. But basically that kind of gave me an avenue to do a lot of animal welfare stuff to reach more people than I could in practice, which was fabulous for me. So basically since then I've been campaigning on animal welfare issues, notably I guess I'm best known for pedigree health problems, which I feel incredibly strongly about things like live exports in farm animals I work quite a lot with compassion in world farming and other things like hunting with dogs yeah so various projects over the years but I have a, a love of welfare and ethics I probably should pick up on this because it would be remiss of me not to mention it that it's weird that you're the only person that I'll ever have on this podcast who I can actually talk to and say yeah I've done that as well and it's a bit weird because I suppose let me explain for people who are listening actually how we first got in contact. It was very odd. I wanted to write a bit of a blog when I was at vet school 
about the experience of going to vet school. And I contacted you, having actually read one of your books, but obviously seen you on telly and stuff prior. I remember actually I, I, when I was sat on my sofa at home watching uh, your, your TV show, Vet School, and thinking, God, I really want to do that. I really, really want to be there and do that. I've always wanted to do that. And then years and years later, obviously, I finally got in and I contacted you and said, look, I'm going to vet school. I want to write a blog. And you really, really kindly said, yes, you can. Well, you'll publish it on your website, which actually I don't feel I've ever thanked you for that. So thank you. Well, the thing is, I get contacted by I'm doing an interview tomorrow for a school child in Texas who is doing a school project on animals and has picked me. It's really flattering, you know, it, you and other people have said to me, you're the reason I went to vet school. Well, I don't know if I was the reason you went to vet school, but that program. Well, I, I, I think that that blame does lie solely with James Herriot. I'm not going to lie. But I think it's a lovely thing to hear if you've inspired someone to do something. One of the things I loved about Vets in Practice was that it showed the real reality of it. And some vets, older vets, particularly at the time, felt that it that it was a bad thing because it demystified stuff and it showed us making mistakes and things. But the thing is, we are human. And when you're newly qualified, you, you don't know everything. And it's an incre- incredibly stressful job to be in. And I think people loved it. They loved seeing that side of it. And um, I also need to thank you as well, because you gave me a lift home from the Royal College to the uh, station. I did and then got lost and you nearly missed your train. And I remember a very pregnant Emma Mill running to get her train. And I was thinking, oh, my God, you're going to talk to me again. You made the train, you had the baby. It's all fine. You didn't have the baby on the train. It was all good. Oh God, yeah, I forgot that I was. Was I pregnant then? Yeah, quite heavily pregnant, I think. Yeah, but waddled up to the platform quite late, thanks to me. So apologies for that. But it cemented our friendship, I feel. She turned out all right in the end. That and alcohol cemented our friendship. Anyway, yeah, so we do have similarities. So we kicked off by me doing the blog, obviously, on your website. And then I contacted you to say, you're not going to believe this, but I've um, been asked to go on this TV show. It's very similar to the one you did. And, and I went on that, and that was Young Vets by the BBC. And it was brilliant. And I agree with everything you just said about actually letting people into, you know, behind the scenes of what happens when you're training to be a vet, but also being a vet. I think people want to know that there is an insatiable appetite for pet owners and people who like animals and veterinary stuff to see what it is we do behind the scenes. I I don't think that'll ever be satisfied that that appetite for that and and people loved it and and it was such a good show to be on and it's just so weird how we have these similarities between us throughout our life even to the point where when I was reading your book both our first dogs were called Penny (laughs) it's just weird anyway moving on so so now obviously you dedicate a lot of your time to to as you say campaigning for animal welfare and improvements in animal welfare and health and as you quite rightly mentioned earlier you probably are most famous or perhaps I should say infamous for your campaigning to improve the health and welfare of of what are called brachycephalic or flat-faced dog breeds, so your French bulldogs and, and things like that. How is that campaign going at the moment? That's a great question, which is probably impossible to answer. I guess to put some context to it, and, and I'm, I think we'll talk about this more later. For me, it's not just the brachycephalics, but because they've become very popular, they have headlined everything in recent years. And I, I hope really that we can make people see that it isn't just flat-based animals that are having these health issues, but they're kind of the epitome of what we've done to these uh, body shapes. So I 
qualified in 96, I very soon in practice became quite demoralized by the number of animals that I was treating, problems that were purely related to their breed, which is man-made, not related to just random accidents and abscesses and things like that. I'd done a couple of newspaper interviews around 2000 about problems, particularly with brachycephalics. And then in 2004, was interviewed for a programme about British, uh, well, English bulldogs. So for, yeah, 20 odd years, I've sort of been talking about it. And you get a lot of backlash. But the thing is, then the brachys became, so I felt at times like I was the only person saying these things which I wasn't but it's just that because I was in the public eye it looked like I was and then because of in the last 10 years the popularity of Frenchies, pugs and and English bulldogs has gone through the roof it seems now that that's the only thing that you know I campaign on as do many other vets and veterinary organizations and for me I think it's difficult the popularity is starting to dip but we're still you know these are progressive diseases that those animals have so if we think that there are hundreds of thousands of those animals in the UK alone and their health is going to get worse throughout their life for we know 50% of them minimum 50%, probably 60 or 70% of them will have some kind of progressive disease, not just respiratory. So the sheer volume of that animal suffering is huge, which is why vets have been so keen to talk about it. As for how the campaign is going, I don't know. I think vets really struggle to get that message out there because people impulse buy animals, not just dogs, with lots of influencers like celebrities and social media without any research. And that's something that as a profession, we must comprehensively tackle going forward, I think. I agree. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go back to basics for those people listening who perhaps don't know why we're talking about these flat faced breeds. Just very quickly run through what is the main concern that vets and others have with these breeds that's causing such a welfare concern for us. With the brachies, basically, we have bred them to have shorter and shorter faces. So humans have short faces, but we've evolved to have those faces. So all of the bits that are in there work properly. When you take a breed of dog and you change, you select for a certain feature, we have evolved over millions of years, us and dogs. And then we change them in 50 to 100 years completely changed their body shape so we shortened their faces but everything else didn't shorten so their skin didn't shorten so they have these big skin folds that cause infection they rub on their eyes they are chronically inflamed they have narrow nostrils the whole cooling down system that dogs have inside their nose is obliterated so they can't cool down so they overheat and they collapse as soon as it gets above 15 20 degrees They have long, soft palates because that hasn't shortened. They have huge tongues that don't fit in their mouth. They have tiny tracheas, windpipes compared to normal weight of a a non-brachycephalic dog that size. They have multiple problems with their respiratory system, which gives a good percentage of them clinical respiratory distress, which a lot of owners normalize because they snore. Oh, well, it's normal for a pug to snore. No, it isn't. Um, It might be usual for a pug to, to snore, but it is not normal for a dog to snore pretty much ever the suffering is horrific and it's not just that this is one thing i'd get across to people all of our cpd all of the media is about boas which is the respiratory problems but they have skin fold pyoderma their eyes bulge out because we like this big cute big eyed look but that 
traumatizes their eyes. Lots of them have to have their eyes removed, one or both. They have dental problems because their teeth don't line up. So they have chronic pain from that. And now we're seeing increased cases of congenital heart disease in some of them. The Frenchies have a very escalating problems with intervertebral disc disease. So lots of them paralyzed or semi-paralyzed. You know, these are not, they're not insignificant problems. And I think one thing that would be good to get across to people is when we look at welfare and ethics, one way that that you judge a welfare problem and the scale of it is the number of animals involved, the severity of the welfare problem and how long it lasts. So for example, if you talked about non-stun slaughter to go completely in a different direction, it affects a, a lot of animals, but not all. The duration is very short, but the welfare impact is very high if you're not stunned before you're so you can make a judgment about how bad that is and people will differ in their opinions but for these animals you're talking about multiple health problems that cause significant welfare impacts for the whole of the dog's life and there are hundreds of thousands of them so for me when I say it's indefensible to carry on breeding those animals I feel that I'm justified in saying that because the welfare impact is enormous. I obviously, you know, practice as a vet and I see these breeds and even when I'm out on the street, I see these dogs and they're walking along and it really upsets me sometimes just to see these dogs when they're just walking and they're just trying to live a normal dog's life and they're being impeded in doing that just because of how they've been bred and how they they can't function as a, as a normal dog would function. And as you've just said about the ethics and welfare and how you judge it, the length of time that something is affecting an animal for, these dogs struggle with breathing, let's say, just take one element of all the things you've just mentioned, the breathing aspects. I mean, it's so fundamental to life to breathe that everyone listening is doing it right now without even thinking about it. But these dogs will struggle to take a nice deep breath and get enough oxygen in every single breath for every second of every minute of every hour, for every month, for every year of the lives that they're on this planet. And that, that is indefensible. I don't know how anyone can defend actively causing and being aware that you're causing that in an animal. And it's not just, as you said, one or two. It's often across, let's you know, pick a breed, 90 to 95 to 100% of some of these breeds that are being affected like this. I don't know how people can defend that. And I find it hugely upsetting to see that as a human, not just as a vet, but as a human, to see another animal suffering like that. I really struggle with how some people can defend that. I wanted to pick up on what you just said about it's indefensible to breed those dogs like that. So is it your opinion that we should stop breeding those dogs? Because I'm more of the opinion that we should start to breed them differently or have, you know, outbreeding. So bringing in different genetics to try and get these breeds back to how they were to get them back to a more healthy functional state, how they perhaps were, like you said, 100 years ago or plus. But has it gone too far genetically for us to pull them back from the brink of this? Again, great question. And I am going to be very far to one side of the spectrum on this answer. Personally, the first veterinary paper on brachycephalic issues was published around 100 years ago. The veterinary profession have been intermittently but constantly campaigning about this for 100 years. And they have got worse, not better. I think the fact is that we know that even when they were more moderate, a hundred years ago, they still had significant enough health issues that the veterinary profession said that it was wrong. So to my mind, you, you should you shouldn't breed them. If you look at the 
where dogs in the world survive still by pretty much natural selection. So your street dog populations. I've done some work in South Africa with I4, which is the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And we worked in the in the townships in Johannesburg and Cape Town. And there the dogs are medium sized. They have short hair, long faces, semi or semi erect ears, long tails, long legs. They're proportionate animals, even if they're smaller or they're bigger, that they, you don't get giant or teacups, you certainly don't get brachycephalics, you don't get bassets or dachshunds or sharpays with excessive skin folds. The thing is, people often have a go at me and say, oh, you hate pedigree animals, you're against breeds, you know, you're wanting to wipe out these breeds. The thing is, for me, the species is important. The welfare of the dog species is important. Breeds are a man-made concept. I don't care. If we had completely across the board hybrid mongrels that you couldn't tell what it was it's just a dog like we are with cats for the most part oh i want a cat uh, well what sort of cat is it no one ever says that so well it's a moggy isn't it it's just a cat although they're going the same way now we want family pets that can lead a healthy normal life with good temperaments that fit in with our lifestyle as humans i don't care about the breeds we've got 200 plus breeds of dogs that are recognized now in the uk more in in the states when the kc started there were 19 recognized breeds so if we did without the other 200 breeds beforehand why are we upset about them disappearing unless someone's going to make a new breed of dog that's just a dog that is healthy and has a good temperament and is moderate in its body shape fine i will be all behind that but the thing is i reckon i could list immediately 30 breeds of cat and dog that should not be bred if i was in charge of the law i would say no completely banned you go straight to prison if you produce one of those animals for me the suffering is as tangible as if we were physically beating them on a daily basis and we would never support that but we are happy to let people produce animals that we as vets particularly categorically know are likely to suffer i don't see why we differentiate between those two things so even if you took those 30 breeds away people have still got 150 to choose from now, i'm not saying don't get a pedigree dog i wouldn't ever in my life but i'm not saying you shouldn't have breeds just have moderate animals that can live a normal life it's an interesting perspective and i don't know if i'm 100 in agreement with you because i'm torn in that i agree the species of dogs as a whole it's important that they have to be healthy and fit and i'm Obviously, 100% in agreement with you on the on the welfare of, of breeding dogs that are going to suffer their entire life. I wonder, actually, how difficult it would be, though. People are so attached to certain breeds. I like Labradors, and I'd be devastated if Labradors disappeared off the planet. So I can, I can empathise with people who love certain breeds, but I, I, I take the tack that I would really rather that they, instead of obliterating these breeds and saying, well, let's not breed them, I'd try to breed them better and make a, a different version of a French bulldog or a different version of an English bulldog so that they are still that breed, but they're just healthier and have much better welfare. But I, I, I don't know if that's even possible. That doesn't, like you said, the last hundred years we've been fighting for this and I don't think there's the, the will or the impetus to do it from those who love the breed, defend the breed, breed the breeds. I, I just don't think it's there. The thing is, it's interesting you mentioned Labradors because this is another thing that's massive that people don't, you know, we've, we've touched on extreme conformation and body shapes, but the level of congenital inherited disease. So you love Labradors, which means that you love 
nice for the most part, good temperament, medium-sized, short-haired, proportionate dogs. But Labradors, as you are very well aware, are, and you will have seen these in practice, one of my most memorable cases was a guy who came to us, he had a Labrador that he, a Labrador bitch that he wanted to breed from, and just around the age of 12 months she started to go lame so we said we would x-ray her hips because he wanted to breed from her anyway so we said well we'll do the x-ray and we'll get her hips scored and, and just check the hips out at the same time this dog out of 106 which is the worst score you can have was something like 92 so this young active dog had crippling hip dysplasia we told the guy about it and he was furious and he he took it out on us and obviously it was unfair to do that. It wasn't our fault. And it, but he was understandably furious. And we talked about hip scoring. We're like, do you know if the parents were hip scored? And he was like, well, how is it possible that I've been able to buy this dog if the parents weren't hip scored? How is it possible? And this is fundamental. For 20 years, I have been asking the Kennel Club why health tests are not mandatory. Why is it not mandatory? And they'll say, oh, well, we only register a certain percentage of dogs, blah, blah, blah. That they should make it mandatory for their dogs. That is unforgivable from my point of view. But the fact is, our law should make that mandatory for any breeder. If any breeder is producing a dog with a well-known congenital inherited defect, to produce a litter without health testing should be against the law. You know, we've got a lot of tests that we could do that we don't. And we let anyone breed any animal without any consequences. You know, Labradors have been the most popular pet, apart from a couple of blips where French Bulldogs took over, God help us. Labradors have been the most popular dog in the UK for, for decades, but they have ostensibly a healthy body shape. That's why they make good pets. But, you know, inbreeding, which is what pedigree dogs are, they are inbred, has caused devastating health problems in them as well. So we've, you've got hip dysplasia now, we've got elbow dysplasia, and they're hidden things that people don't see, but yet they cripple their animals and they're heartbreaking for the owners and they're devastating from a quality of life point of view for the dogs. A bit like when somebody asks a mechanic, what type of car should I get? What, what, what's the best type of car that doesn't break down? Vets often get asked, what breed of dog should I get? What's the healthiest breed of dog? I honestly, hand on heart, could not pick a single pedigree breed that doesn't immediately also come to mind that there's they've got a condition that that they might get or might or, you know already have or suffer from i genuinely can't think of one labradors are, are fantastic dogs but of course inherently a lot of them get arthritis in fact i was just talking to someone yesterday and and my last labrador that i lost a, a year 18 months ago Jack, i said she's probably the only labrador i'll ever have ever had and probably will ever have that absolutely had not one hint of arthritis she didn't have any of it. But yeah, uh, you're right. The Labradors need to breed out the arthritis. And, I, and I, again, I don't know if that's even possible with the, the, the genetic pool that we've got left of Labradors. I really don't. But I, I think the interesting thing is, because I started looking into this more for uh, an article I was writing for a paper a while ago, outcrossing, there are lots of vets that have contacted me over the years who have said the same as me. If you say to an owner, do you want a pedigree dog or an inbred one? And they always say, oh, no, I don't want something that's inbred because when you talk about humans who are inbred, it's sort of this, you know, it has all these negative connotations. But pedigree, the word pedigree conjures up these images of, you know, royal bloodlines and the best of the best, you know, pedigree ales, pedigree 
pet foods or whatever it is. And the fact is, all pedigree animals are inbred. That's how they keep the lines pure, if you like. So there's a misconception about what it means. But I didn't know that until the 1960s, I think, outcrossing, as soon as there was a health problem that was well recognised in a breed, they were outcrossed, which means that they would take, for example, if we're talking about brachycephalics, lots of people say, oh, well, we should maybe cross them with a Jack Russell for a few generations and then breed them back. One example is the Dalmatian outbreeding project where Dalmatians have a lot of problems with a certain type of bladder stone because they have a metabolic disorder that gives them crystals in their bladder that turn into stones. There was a project where they were outcrossed with pointers, which are virtually the same body shape and size, and then they were crossed back. And within a few generations, show judges couldn't tell the difference between the Dalmatian that had been outcrossed with a pointer and didn't have the inherited defect and the normal Dalmatians that did. And this is the whole thing for me that is crazy about breeds. People are only looking at what they look like. So all the time that you're breeding for looks, which is the whole concept of breed standards, you can never prioritise health or temperament because you're always putting something above that. And that's the fundamental problem I remember I had a, a client after I'd been qualified a couple of years. I did a vaccination check for a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel that was six. And I did the full clinical exam before the injection. And I said, did you know that she had a heart murmur? And the owner said, oh, no, I didn't. But my last four died of heart failure. And as a young vet, I just stood there and I was like, so it's just accepted as normal that Cavaliers all die of heart failure. Well, I'm sorry, that that's not acceptable. But people who love breeds, as you say, I, I think particularly is the States and Europe, we think that breeds are super important because we've developed that. When I was a kid, you know, you'd say to someone, oh, what's your dog? Oh, it's a Heinz 57, we used to call them. And I was really shocked. I mean, I'm 50, but I'm not ancient. You know, you say the, the term Heinz 57 to people these days, and they're like, oh, I don't know what that is. Because we've become, even in my lifetime, we've become super obsessed with what breed a dog is. Whereas when I was a kid, it was just like, oh, well, I'll, I want a dog. I'll just go to the, as I did at 11, we went and got a dog from the RSPCA. Didn't care what it was, just wanted a dog. And I think that's really sad. And it's starting in other countries, which is why we should, as a global profession, should be trying to help countries not go down the same route that, that we have already. Now, it's interesting you say that because I was going to ask, why has the abnormal become normalised? A lot of people say, oh, well, that's normal for the breed. But it's not normal in the strictest terms. It's typical or common, but it's not normal. So why has it become that the abnormal has become normal in these dogs? Personally, I think it's because the problems are so common. You know, when we mentioned the, the Cavalier, people know that Cavaliers die of heart failure. You know, in that breed, I think I'm right in saying that by 10, 100% of Cavalier King Charles Spaniels have mitral valve problems whether they're in heart failure or not there's lots of vets who are trying to really get away from and and we we've been guilty of this in the past and and probably there are vets that are still doing it that say for example you're presented with a puppy or a, a kitten and it's got it's a certain breed so say you've got a sharpe puppy and it's covered in skin folds or it's got entropion which is where their eyelids roll in and rub on their eyes well that's pretty common in sharpes and is horrible for the animal as you can imagine so people are like well you know so the vet says well perhaps you're going to do a, a, a check for its insurance papers and as a vet you're supposed to note down any 
abnormalities. So for a brachycephalic dog, maybe you you would say, well, it's got dental malocclusion and a massive skin fold on its nose but that's normal for the breed so I'm not going to write it down as a defect because the insurance company won't pay for it for the owner and this is something that I put in a lot of my talks actually this will sound harsh to a, a few generations of animals but I don't think insurance companies should be paying for conditions in breeds that we know are related to their breed standard so why should an insurance company pay for spinal surgery in a dachshund or entropian surgery in a sharpe or respiratory surgery in a bulldog when their breed standard practically dictates that they have those things. I think it's like car insurance, you know, why should owners who are picking dogs that are moderate and don't have those problems be penalised with high premiums by people who are choosing animals that we know will need thousands of pounds worth of work to give them a normal life? The normalisation, I think, is because the, the problems are so common. You know, one of the things that distresses me as well as many, many other vets are the videos on social media going back to brachys, which we should stop talking about, I know, of brachycephalic animals falling asleep, sitting up or with stuff wedged in their mouths or with their teeth hooked onto chairs and they circulate on social media and everyone's like, oh, it's so cute. Look, oh, he's so tired. He fell asleep sitting up. No, he doesn't. It's not cute. He can't breathe when he lays down. Dogs need to breathe through their nose when they lay down. So any dog that falls asleep sitting up or wedges its mouth open is in respiratory distress when it tries to go to sleep. And these dogs we know have the same issues as sleep apnea in children and adults. You know, they have constantly disrupted sleep patterns. So these these kind of things, we as a profession have to stop using the word normal when we speak to owners and breeders. And we need to be much, much clearer about it. It's like, well, oh, yeah, they all do that, don't they? No, a lot of them might do, but it doesn't mean that we should accept that it's okay because it isn't. It's interesting you touched on that. I had a conversation recently with another vet about what we record in our clinical notes. And I was of the opinion that when I do a physical exam on, let's say, start from the beginning, a puppy, somebody brings a puppy in and it's either, as you said, a dachshund or a, or a brachycephalic or something. I'm of the opinion... And I was taught this at vet school, actually, that we should, in our clinical notes, be writing the abnormalities that we find on our physical exam. So for a French bulldog, for example, sorry, French bulldogs that we're picking on you, but <laughs> you're a good example, that for a French bulldog puppy, you would write flat face, upper respiratory noise, long soft palate, you know, slits for nostrils. There's lots of things that you would write. They are factual observations of the dog that is presented in front of me. The vet who I was talking to about this was of a differing opinion and thought that those things should not be recorded as abnormalities for two reasons. One, in case the owner ever sees those notes, which all owners have a right to see the notes that that are written about their animal, of course they do, and that that might upset them or instigate some form of complaint. And secondly, that, and you've touched on this briefly just now, that it could cause problems with insurance claims. Now, I'm of the opinion that I suppose really when you think about it, these things could could potentially be classed as pre-existing conditions when it comes to insurance because they are born like it. So they're already aware that these animals have these issues because, as you said, they're so ubiquitous throughout that breed. 
That's my opinion on it. But I was told at vet school we should be writing these things down. And there's another reason why I think they should be written down, because there is um, software that the, the vet schools in particular use or, to accumulate information about things that vets see out in practice. And they use that information to get numbers on how frequently things are being seen. And if we're not writing in our notes that we've seen X, Y or Z, then they're not getting accurate numbers of how frequently we're seeing X, Y and Z. I am 100% in agreement with you. I think the data gathering, you know, one of the things that comes up often when I do presentations on this kind of thing is how can we, if, as you said earlier, you think that we, and this is where we differ, you believe we should breed the animals to be better and I think we shouldn't breed them, those breeds. But the thing is, if we are going to take a middle ground stance and say that, that we need to breed for a healthy muzzle length, for example. And obviously people like Rowena Packer and, and Dan O'Neill have done lots and lots of investigation into this kind of thing. But something that was interesting that came up at a conference that I was at on the extreme confirmation is how can we tell breeders what to breed for if we don't know what the accepted minimums or maximums are? Now, I, I would love it if we could do a study on street dogs, all the charities that work with street dogs all over the world or mongrels, whatever they are, that take some fundamental measurements and look at natural populations of other canids and felids as well, things like coyotes, dingoes, that are genuinely being selected for by nature. Because how can we say as a profession that you need to have a muzzle length of something if we don't know? But the thing that comes off the back of that is because we know that lots of countries who are far better than the UK for animal welfare are already making bold steps in this direction, such as Holland. They've said, well, you can't breed a pug unless it's got a face that is th this dimension, which is great. But how do we know that that is healthy? Because from what I said earlier about the papers published 100 years ago, probably isn't as healthy as a, a normocephalic dog. So unless we get some proper research into what maximums and minimums are healthy, we can't really say... So I, I think to go back to the original question, we should absolutely be writing all those things down. And money talks, the minute that people realise that their insurance isn't going to cover things that are their pre-existing conditions, of course they are. You know, we've, we've got to reduce the demand for these animals rather than try and firefight, you know, after they've been bought. So the only way people are going to stop breeding them or start breeding for healthier individuals is if we reduce the demand for them. Okay, let's move on to talk about similar but different different species because it's becoming more and more common that the breeding for specific looks, as you said, it's purely aesthetics really that, that these dogs have come about. This type of breeding for how an animal looks seems to be crossing species borders and affecting other species. Perhaps run us through some of the other species that you're, you're concerned about that this craze is, is affecting at the moment. Um, well, the notable ones are cats and rabbits. So for years, I mean, people know about cats. Like, So Siameses are particularly pointy-faced with big ears. Persians would be your brachycephalics. British shorthairs, also brachycephalic. Persians are the epitome, I guess, to the point that now some of them have got concave faces. They have noses that are literally up between their eyes. So the, the problem with a lot of the other species that are affected is that they... They're very subtle animals. 
so they don't show overt signs. So cats, if they can't breathe and they can't exercise, they'll just sit there. So the owners don't particularly notice. No one, well, not many people take their cat for a walk quite rightly. But so unless you're forcing a cat to exercise, you're not going to notice those problems. Persians, I, I'm a, an ambassador, if you like, for International Cat Care, which is an incredibly science-based, great charity. And if you go to their website, you know, if you look at the other extreme confirmation in cats, you're looking at things like hairlessness, so the sphinxes. And, and what people need to realise is that some of these, these things, like Scottish fold cats as well, where they have, everyone likes their cute folded ears, but actually that is a cartilage defect that affects all the cartilage in their body. So those cats are prone to premature crippling arthritis throughout their whole body because we want them to look like an owl. You know, these things, when you, when you say it in the bluntest terms, again, we've used the word sport a couple of times earlier. To me, you know, if there are legislative bodies discussing whether they should be banned, you, you know, talk to vets, they should be banned. That should not be allowed. So international cat care are a great source of information about breed problems and, and you know, what we shouldn't, should and shouldn't be breeding. So sphinxes, Scottish fold cats, they're pretty categoric about that. You know, you make a hairless cat, cats are fastidious groomers with tongues like barbed wire. So if you create a cat that has no fur, that has an instinct to groom itself, it will traumatise its body every day and be in pain. They can't go outside because they get sunburn. If they get into a fight with another cat, they're horrifically injured. These are things that are, are just phenomenal to me that we've allowed it to happen. Rabbits, I'm a patron of the Rabbit Welfare Association and Fund. Again, a fantastic charity based in science and evidence-based medicine. And, you know, we do a lot of welfare and ethics education. And 50% of the rabbits in the UK are lop-eared. So they have the cute little downy ears that trap wax inside them, predispose them to ear-based abscesses. Loads of the lop-eared breeds and some of the others are brachycephalic. So we've shortened their faces, which changes the structure of their teeth like it does in dogs. But in dogs, mm, they'll get by. In rabbits, they have to have their teeth have to line up because they erupt constantly through their life. So the minute that their teeth don't line up, their teeth overgrow, they lacerate their tongue, they lacerate their cheeks, they can't eat. And rabbits are prey animals, so they don't show pain. They don't complain like a dog would whine if it had a, a sore foot. They sit there in their hutch, abandoned at the bottom of the garden, and they don't make any sign of it until they're practically dead. You know, just this week we've had, in this last week at work, three rabbits all present because they've stopped eating and it's sad that straight away we know that in 99% of those cases it's because they've got teeth issues and and absolutely it was correct for those three 100% of them all three teeth issues we sorted their teeth and then they started eating straight away and it was fine but I think and, something really important to say with that is that it's not Dental problems, and we've, we've talked about this privately before, one of the massive issues with pet ownership is that people don't understand basic welfare needs of, of animals. And because rabbits, even the non-brachycephalic ones, you go to a supermarket, you buy some muesli food that it says, this is rabbit food. 
and we like them to get we like to give them something that looks colorful and nice rabbits need to eat hay and grass all day every day that's what they've evolved to do we give them this nice compacted food they can pick and choose what they want and we use the classic example as vets of oh well if you give a, a kid a bowl of salad and haribos it's going to eat all of the haribos and leave all the salad and that's what rabbits do and their teeth don't get ground down so it's really important that people understand the fundamental welfare needs of the pets they're buying you know it's like this current craze of people wanting to feed their cats a vegan diet well your cat will die if you feed it a vegan diet you know this this isn't we're not imposing our will and convenience on our animals. Our animals should benefit from us knowing what they actually fundamentally biologically need. Unpopular opinion alert. I don't think rabbits really make the best pets at all, precisely because of what you've just said. Their absolute fundamental welfare needs are wholly misunderstood by a majority of the people that unfortunately have them as pets. It's almost as if people think there are two populations of rabbits. There are wild rabbits, which we all know sit out and eat grass. And then there's this other population of rabbits, which we have as pets that want to eat muesli or pellets. Um, no, a rabbit eats grass and hay is dry grass, believe it or not. I know that's just blown the mind of some people that are listening, but hay is dry grass and rabbits, need to eat a lot of hay because of their teeth structure, as you've said, that they're constantly erupting and they need to grind. So even like you just said, muesli, they filter feed. They pick out the bits they want and then they leave the bits they don't. That's no good. So one step better, we give them pellets, which are all the same and it's got everything in there they want. But even that's not good enough. You're doing better, but you're not doing great <laughs> because even those pellets, they munch them up and they're gone within five, 10 minutes. And now what does a rabbit eat? What does it do now to grind its teeth down for the rest of the 23 hours in the day? Like digging with rabbits is another, you know, understanding behavioural and social needs of your pets is fundamental. And I think that's the thing, you know, pellets, yes, absolutely the right thing to buy, but they need, we would say, an egg cup a day max per rabbit. But the thing that I think is quite shocking for people to understand is that main recommendation for rabbit diet would be that they need an amount of hay each day that is the equivalent to the size of their body, not their weight. But you need a rabbit sized pile of hay for every one of your rabbits a day. And I say rabbits because they should never be kept on their own. When I wrote my kids' books, I did rabbits and cats first because at opposite ends of the spectrum, they're the most misunderstood, neglected pets, in my view. Rabbits are social animals that must be kept with other rabbits that want to graze and have loads of space. I completely agree with you. And, you know, this comes up in our Ethics and Welfare Day every year, uh, every time we do it with, with, our, with our WAF, is that rabbits are not good pets and they're certainly not kids' pets never ever get rabbits for your kids so rabbits are social animals they need loads of space in the wild they have a, a football field that they would explore with multiple family units social contact all day grazing but at dusk and dawn where they're most active so if you want to just shove them in a run when it's convenient to you it's not going to work they should always have access to a safe exercise area where they can choose when they you know, we know one of the other things that's fundamental to animal welfare is freedom of choice. So things like indoor cats, 
so cats opposite end of the spectrum they're solitary creatures but we're a social animal so we're like oh my cat i go to work and my cat's on his own so i'm going to get him another cat and, and the cat that's there's like oh my god you literally just put my worst enemy in the house with me that's competing for all the stuff i like with like my food and my litter tray and you and then we don't understand when they start urinating all over the house you know these are really fundamental mental health needs that our pets have as social and behavioral so i would urge anyone who's getting any pet look at those two needs the environmental needs like the environment the food water and the freedom from pain and injury they they should be the easiest things to nail but what we miss is the need to be with or without other animals which is important and the need to exhibit natural behavior and I think this is one of the things that, apart from my pedigree health stuff, is when I do the welfare and ethics things, you know, the, the mistakes we make with keeping pets, those two things are the biggest problem, I think. Uh, it's interesting that all the things that you just mentioned are from the five welfare needs of, of animals, which are, as you say, the fundamental needs that each individual species that we might have as pets need to have decent welfare. And I think the main problem is that when we don't meet those needs, it's because we're trying to fit these animals into a human life uh, from a human perspective. And that's absolutely not how you're going to get good welfare for these species. You have to look at it from the perspective of the animal. You touched on cats, for example. I I've lost count of how many times a week I'll say to somebody, cats don't like other cats. They tolerate yeah. humans at the best of times. And the moment that they can open a packet of cat food, humans will be obsolete. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the whole thing about dogs have owners, cats have staff. But I, I think that's the thing. And going back to what you said about the fundamental welfare needs, that's what we need to remember as well. These are the most basic welfare needs. They're not like, oh, you know, they're going to have a fabulous life if you meet these basic welfare needs. This is like food and water that's appropriate for the species these aren't beyonce riders they need these fundamental things to have the life of a rabbit or the life of a cat they're not you know i must only have filtered every and water in my bowl it's i need x y and z actually because i'm a rabbit yeah absolutely and there's a great um if people want to google the pdsa poor report pet animal welfare report they do every year PDSA are another fab charity and they do a report into at the moment it just covers dogs cats and rabbits they interview lots of owners and vets and they look at costs and things and the cost of owning a pet is massively underestimated but the the animal welfare law that describes the five welfare needs came into power in the UK well some of the countries are different but largely 2006 so quite a while ago now and every year the poor report finds that there are still a significant number of owners who've never heard of five welfare needs. So I think the more we can actually get people to find out what that is, the better the welfare for our pets will be, hopefully. I wanted to get your opinion on something that I'm seeing a massive increase in out in clinical practice at the moment. And it's the importing of foreign stray dogs from abroad. And I'm seeing a massive explosion of dogs coming in from everywhere from from Greece uh from Spain from all over the place and and I wanted to get your opinion on that in terms of you know health disease welfare resources um it's quite funny actually because this morning one of my first jobs was writing a blog to follow up a podcast a, another podcast that's coming out soon about 
obtaining puppies and one of the questions was about dog adoption now i'm a massive advocate of adoption i i personally would never buy a dog from a breeder not to say there aren't good breeders out there let me caveat that the craze for adopting dogs from abroad when it started i was fundamentally opposed to it for the reasons that we have thousands of dogs here and i think that the process of importing animals for the animal itself is probably very stressful since then i've done quite a lot of research into it and i go to quite a lot of conferences where it's covered so i feel like i can speak from a bit more of a, an educated point of view than i my initial instinct and i i still having done all that research think that it's fundamentally wrong a lot of these dogs firstly just from the point of view of uk health we are importing dogs that are riddled with novel infectious diseases and parasites that we don't have in the uk or didn't have until recently so things like leishmaniasis visiosis tick-borne disease rabies it's only a matter of time until that arrives so there are significant disease risks but i think fundamentally for me you're importing animals that are going to go through some sort of quarantine process and you're taking ostensibly dogs that have lived on the street and our natural instinct it feels like a noble thing to do i'm going to get this dog that's had this rubbish life in our eyes and i'm going to put it in my nice house with my nice family i'm going to feed it well and i'm going to do all these things because he's hungry there and he's outside these dogs have guarded their resources fiercely through their whole lives they've never seen a ceiling They've never been confined and you take them from that environment, you put them in your house and the behavioral issues can be, I'm not saying they're all the same, but they can be very significant. These dogs have a massive tendency to, to guard resources, which can be a huge issue with kids wanting to take stuff away from them and adults wanting to take stuff away from them. So if you're an incredible owner who's mega versed in behavioral problems and dealing with dogs like that, maybe it's okay. But fundamentally, you know, if you think of the amount of money that someone might spend on bringing a dog from Romania to England, if they donated that money to a charity that's working with those animals in the country where they are, and there are many of them that are brilliant, and then adopted a dog from a packed adoption centre in the UK, brilliant. To me, it's madness. I know it's a bit different at the moment because of the war in Ukraine. I know there's people trying to get dogs out of a war-torn area. That's slightly different. But to me, the whole thing of these charities that are just now making a fortune out of importing dogs from anywhere in the world is wrong on a lot of different levels. And I know that that may be an unpopular view with some people, but having spoken to the specialists in behaviour and infectious disease, I'm pretty happy to stand by those feelings everything we've talked about so far has been very important but not necessarily the most uplifting should we say there's got to be something within animal welfare and ethics that's that's uplifting and positive that's going in the right direction that you can tell us about surely please anything i know I'm, yeah i'm sorry that that all was a bit depressing but um it, it's important to get those messages out there i think the thing is we should remember there are great breeders out there you can find them just make sure you educate yourself make sure you know what the needs of your pets are and and that's really important and there are some fabulous charities that we've mentioned today that can help really good resources on their websites i think if i was going to say one thing that's a great tool for people to use if they're thinking about getting puppies because we know in the pandemic lots of people did 
and this not many people know about it, is there's a thing called the AWF puppy contract. And if you just literally Google the puppy contract, it's free to download. It comes with a puppy information pack that the breeder fills in. It asks all the fabulous health questions. And the contract itself is a great tool for empowering people who maybe buy a puppy and then it turns out that it was unhealthy or that something hadn't been done that could have been done. It empowers the buyers, not just the, the breeders, which always used to be the status quo. And it's, it's brilliant. It's such an underused resource. If I could just say to anyone, check out the charity websites. And if buying a dog, if a breeder won't sign that contract and fill in the puppy information pack, do not buy the puppy. Just walk away, no matter how sorry you feel for it walk away because it's really important for you and your family's mental well-being as well as the health of your puppy that you'll be buying i would also add to that that please if you're thinking of getting any pet any species you know feel free to phone your local vet practice and ask them before you go and get the animal their advice prevention is better than cure and vets are the animal's advocate. We are the ultimate animal's advocate. It's what we do. It's our bread and butter every day, all day for our, our entire career. So come and talk to us. The bit you need to hear is it's free. We won't charge you just to talk to us on the phone about this stuff. So come and talk to vets and get some advice about, well, what is the best um, breeder dog for my lifestyle? Is a rabbit a good pet for my children? Should I get a cat or should I get two cats or what should I do? Come and talk to us. We can give you this information free before you go ahead and make any commitments. Because at the end of the day, it's going to be the animal that suffers if it's the wrong thing to do. And that is what we all want to prevent, surely. Anyway. 100% agree with that. Talk to your vet. Well, I think we've covered loads of really good stuff here. And I think it's been educating for everyone who's listened. I think we've covered some fantastic subjects today, Emma. And I really, once again, just want to thank you for not only coming onto the podcast today, but obviously everything that you do for increasing animal welfare for all sorts of species across the board. I know you get a lot of flack for this. You have for years. Totally unwarranted, in my opinion. <laughs> but you are... <laughs> pretty much the ultimate animal advocate in my opinion oh that's really kind and honestly I have had some pretty horrific black over the years but it's things like this and it's hearing people say things like that that make me um carry on putting my head above the parapet so thank you to you as well well you you're the same you're you're doing it too so no it's it's good it, I, I'm absolutely flattered to be asked well, I think it's, it's important that somebody puts their head above the parapet and I'm more than happy to, to join that group of people who put their head above the parapet and dodgy bullets that we get daily. Thank you so much again for coming on, Emma. It's been brilliant. No, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you do want to get in touch with me, then you can simply email me on theunderdogvetpodcast at gmail.com or get in touch via Instagram, where you'll find me as, yes, theunderdogvetpodcast. Don't forget to hit subscribe via your favourite platform. And please note that the Underdog Vet podcast is entirely independent. It's just me, Dr. Judy Puddyfoot, speaking as an individual. No affiliations with any organisations, charity or businesses are made or implied unless I specifically mention it. <laughs>